Hi, thanks for joining me. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, and you're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, every once in a while, when you uh, hear someone say something, you're stunned that that person said it. I think one of those, I had one of those events when I learned about Alice Cooper. How many of you remember who Alice Cooper was? The rock musician. I can remember as a kid learning that, you know, he was one of those heavy metalers and that meant he was a satanic person. And, and then it turns out he's a Christian. In fact, he says that it's, if it wasn't for God, he never would have been able to quit drinking. And he's given glory to God. And, and you hear something like that and you think, Alice Cooper? The guy who wore the big, you know, eyeshadow under his lips and under his eyes, rather. And I mean, just that guy's a Christian? And, and you're amazed by it. And then you see other people that you get stunned and you learned about it. And, and we're going to see a story similar to that. It's one of those events, one of those times when somebody shocks you with what they say and you go, wait a minute now. There's got to be something behind that. And it makes you want to know the rest of the story. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to hear from the king of Babylon a statement of faith, maybe like no other in Scripture. It definitely is one of the most compelling that I've ever read. And so starting in verse 1 and reading the first three verses, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Now understand who this is. This is an amazing confession of faith coming from King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who, who defeated Jerusalem, who took the holy uh, artifacts of the temple and brought them back to his home in Babylon as a way of saying, my God is stronger than your God. A, a man who believes in all kinds of gods. He believed in Bel, who was the, the god of the Babylonians. And he believed in Marduk, the god of the Chaldeans. And those are very connected in religious times at, at, back then. And he's one of these, he, he's an evil pagan king. But he says, I've got to tell you about the wonders of the most high God. And you hear that and you think, that guy said that. Now look at verse 3 as he continues. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And you hear that and you think about who he was and you wonder what happened. What in the world took place? It reminds me this week I read a Facebook post. Someone said if you had been kidnapped and then the kidnappers wanted everyone to think you were okay so they let you post on Facebook. But you wanted all the friends and family that you know to know you're not okay. What would you post? And I said I would post, boy I sure hope the Chicago Bears have a great football season. 
Because if you know me, I hate the Bears. That's my least favorite team of all. Every single, of all sports teams that have ever existed, the Chicago Bears are the most evil. And, and God has a holy hatred for them too. No, I'm kidding about that far. That's going too far. You know, football hate's different than real hate. Like if I meet a Chicago Bear, I probably like the guy. But if he's on the Bears and wearing a uniform, I hate him. If I posted that, you'd be going, what in the world is going on with Kevin? And it's the same here. When you read this, you think, what in the world is going on with King Nebuchadnezzar? Why would he say such a thing when he's been such an evil, horrible king? And he's treated the people, the Hebrew people, probably with such disdain before this. Well, you know, sometimes you watch a television show or a movie and it begins with something amazing. This is most effective in a TV show where you're used to following the characters from week to week, right? Or from episode to episode, if you do like I do, where you binge watch most of them on something like Netflix or Hulu. But as you watch the shows, you know these characters and you start to understand them and how they act and what's going on in their lives. And then one episode will begin with something so ridiculously crazy and you wonder as you see that opening part of that show. What has happened? And then it'll flash up on the screen. 24 hours earlier, or in this case, it'll flash up on the screen eight years earlier. That's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 4. One of these flashback stories, Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell his testimony of how God worked in his life. And we're going to see this. Now I want us to think again, if you've been with us and following through, we've been looking through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4 today. That means we've covered the first three stories. And these are some of the best stories. You know, after uh, we talked about the last one, we went home and, and my son Daniel said, you know, uh, I remember you telling me that story when I was just a little bitty kid. You know, uh, the story of, of Matt, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, in the fiery furnace. And then later on, we're going to get to Daniel in the lion's den. But then he also has these other crazy stories. And this is maybe one you haven't heard a lot of. But you know, Daniel chapter 1, that amazing event where, where Daniel was promoted because of an amazing vegan diet plan where you gain weight. Yes, it was a miracle. And then Daniel chapter 2, he gets his vision of the statue, this 90-foot tall statue that he said everybody should bow before. And then Daniel chapter 3 is uh, the story of the, the young men in the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow before this tall statue. And then we have Daniel chapter 4, another vision story. So look at verse 4. It says, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Nebuchadnezzar was a huge success. He was the most powerful king in the known world at that time. He had conquered everybody. He had very little left that he could conquer, at least in the known world. We know that he didn't probably conquer China and up into Russia and definitely not the new world because no one even knew that we existed yet, that this continent existed yet. But he had conquered everywhere, down into Africa, the Middle East, all over the place. 
He also had been building all throughout his empire, but especially there in Babylon in the capital city. He had built an enormous palace. And one of the things that he built is something that is now considered one of the wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. How many of you have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? These amazing gardens that were so beautiful and amazing and people wonder how in the world could they ever have built that and then grown that at that time. Well, he probably, I'm betting, I'm guessing, that when it says he was just resting at his house and he was flourishing in his palace, that he might have been hanging out at the hanging gardens of, of, uh, of Babylon and just looking over the city and amazed. And look at what he says in verse 5. He says, I saw a dream which made me afraid. Now that alone would grab people's attention. The king is afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans, remember the Chaldeans are his closest advisors because they share his ethnicity, and the soothsayers, they came in and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Now notice something. Daniel's not mentioned. Now we go all the way back to Daniel chapter 1. He's been promoted. He's the chief of all of the advisors. Why wouldn't he have been involved in this? I think it's probably something as simple as Daniel was in the palace dealing with palace business. He was too busy to come because he had to run everything. He had been promoted to being maybe the most powerful person. And by the way, he's been doing this now for decades. Because while there's no date, like there are in other passages in Daniel, we can see from the clues here that this is very likely close to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's multi-decade reign over Babylon. And Daniel was promoted at the very beginning, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so as a result of that, he's been doing this job for decades, forever. So imagine they've probably become trusted friends and co-workers, but no one else could interpret the dream. So if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're probably thinking to yourself, I've got all these advisors and none of them can figure this thing out. But I remember that Daniel years ago, a long time ago, at the very beginning of my reign, he was able to interpret that dream of that big statue. Somebody go get Daniel. So in verse 8 it says, but at last Daniel became for, came before him. Now notice the king is speaking. And he says, Daniel came before him. His name is Belteshazzar. Well, he had both names. Why? Daniel's his given name, his Hebrew name. And Belteshazzar was the name that the king gave him. It says, according to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of of the holy God. Now, if you're reading like I am up there, the New King James, it says holy God, but the original Aramaic, this is the part of the Old Testament that was written in Aramaic, it's actually plural, the most holy gods. And so at this point, the king believes in many gods. He says, and I told the dream before him saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So as I said, I pointed out to you the way he addressed Daniel. 
This is the first time in the book that the king calls him Daniel. It may have been one of the first times he's ever called him Daniel. To him, he was named Belteshazzar. Have you ever had someone like that, a friend of yours? You met them and they were named this, but then you saw them in another setting and everyone else called them something else. Uh, we have this problem with our boys because to us, it's Daniel and Michael, Michael and Daniel. But to their friends, it's Mike or Mikey and Danny. And when I hear people call my son Danny, I kind of go, what? No, that's not his name. Now, if you call him Dan, he doesn't like that. I'm not sure why, but he likes Danny, but we call him Daniel. And I think something's going on here where to call him Daniel is a significant change because he's probably always called him according to the name that he gave him, the name that represents his gods, Belteshazzar. This pagan came, king who changed his name is now calling him by his Hebrew name. And he said, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Literally, gods, plural. He thought there were many gods. But he's relied on him because he gets the interpretation from the one true God. So unlike the previous uh, dream, king, the king now, he, he understands Daniel. He knows Daniel. He trusts Daniel. And so he doesn't test him. Remember the other dream a couple chapters ago where he says, look, you tell me the dream I had. I'm not telling you. You tell me. And that's what tripped up his advisors. But this dream is so troubling, the advisors wouldn't even attempt it. Probably afraid that he might kill them. They didn't give him a good interpretation. But this time he trusts Daniel. So he doesn't make him, through a test, tell him the dream. He just tells him the dream. It says in verse 10, These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. It, its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So he gives him this dream. He tells him, I've seen this tree. It's an amazing tree. It's grown so high that it, uh, uh, it grows into the heavens. It's like some great mountain. If you've been out west and seen the mountains, I haven't, but I've seen pictures, you know, where they literally poke into the clouds. And it's so big and strong that the, the leaves of the tree are beautiful and, and all the animals all around the region come and get their shade under it. All the, flower, all the uh, uh, birds rather come and, and rest on its branches and the fruit on that is feeding all of them and literally all flesh. Everybody is eating off of this. But then it turns ominous in verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed. Notice how he repeats that. In other words, he was dreaming. And there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, the leave, leave, nevertheless leave the stump and the roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass. Notice the shift here. It's no longer an it. It's a him. 
In verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence of the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. In verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom and were not able, are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Now, in the retelling of the story, he goes back to calling him Belteshazzar. Why? Well, remember, this is a flashback. And so back at that time, he would have said Belteshazzar. But he began by retelling it after the fact when something's changed and he calls him Daniel. That's a, a signal. It's kind of a clue in the narrative. And he says, these watchers came in my dream. Well, what are watchers? Watchers are, uh, that's simply a, a term that we see in Aramaic. Again, I said this part of Daniel is written in Aramaic. In other non-biblical Aramaic texts, we see that the term watchers is synonymous with archangels. So the archangels like Michael and Gabriel and such. That's the great warrior angels from heaven came down and made this decree. And in this passage, it says that they say their decree was from the Holy One. And the holy ones got, the, got their decree from the word of the Most High. And the decree was to cut it down and to scatter the birds and the animals, all the fruit and the, the leaves that were so beautiful, just take it all down. But, it says, leave the trunk. Leave the trunk. Now, if you've ever seen a tree cut down, if you cut it all the way down to the bottom, you're probably going to kill that tree. But recently, we had our trees cut in our front yard and I was so sad to see it but it had to happen because they were dying and uh, thankfully Rocky came out and did it and you can see that now they're starting to grow again right in other words I believe that what happened was they cut the tree back so that only the trunk remained and it, it says that they put an iron fence around it to bind it what does that mean well some think it means it was not able to grow during this time I just think it was a fence to protect it and it says that the dew would fall on it. The dew would fall on it. Why? So that life can come back to this tree. Now this strange description, it then shifts. Talks about an it, a tree, and then it begins to talk about a him, a being. That's a strange shift, isn't it? But what we're seeing here is what God is going to do. And so he talks to Daniel and he says, uh, uh, this is what happened. And it says that in my dream it happened for seven times. That's just a shortcut name for saying seven years, probably. It could be seven months. It could be seven days. But in context, it almost certainly looks like seven full years. And he pleads with Daniel. No one else could understand, so I'm relying on you. You've got the Spirit of God's in you. Trust, I trust you. I believe you. Tell me now, what does this dream mean? Look how Daniel reacts in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember again, now we're back to present day, and the king is describing what happened back then. 
And so in present terms, he calls him Daniel, but then reminds us, it's, oh yeah, it's, you know, Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. Now this is a time where this term time is used differently. It just means a little while. It says, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. In other words, he's saying, I really hope this isn't really about you. But he knows in his heart that it is and he's troubled. Daniel was so upset. Why would he be so upset at this point? After all, this man has taken him from his home. This man has overseen the destruction of his hometown. But remember, that may have been as much as 30 years ago. And in this time, he and the king have probably worked very closely together. And they maybe, one could say, are even friends. As much as you can be friends with an angry, fiery, evil king when you're a godly man of God. But he's troubled because he knows something. He knows what this dream is saying. So the king tries to assure him. Hey, look, go ahead and tell me. Don't worry. I think essentially the king was saying, I'm not going to kill you no matter what you say to me, okay? So don't worry about it. He thought he was troubled because maybe he was afraid for his life. I think Daniel was troubled because he knew what it meant. And he knew what was happening to this man. This man who was now probably because of Daniel's influence treating the Hebrew people well. And afraid if this man is being removed from the throne, who's next? And what's he going to do? And we know later on from the stories that we see after this that that was a legitimate fear. So look at verse 20. <clears throat> the tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become so strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now in verse 23, inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and the roots of the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass, uh, bronze in the tender grass and of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field. Notice again the shift, it to him, with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord, my king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwellings shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times pass over you, till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That last phrase, and gives it to whomever he chooses, is one of the primary messages of this. God is the real power here. You only rule because he lets you rule and he can take it away from you in a heartbeat. 
In verse 26, inasmuch as they gave the command to, the leave the stump, to leave the stump and the roots there, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Daniel tells him once again, just like the statue before, this tree now, he says, it's you. This tree seems to dominate the world. It influences everything. The whole world can see it. All the birds of the sky and all the beasts of the field are protected by it. All of the animals and maybe even the people are fed by it. You and your kingdom rules the world. But you're going to be driven out. Cut down. Removed. And you're going to be out there living like a beast outside so the dew falls on you. Eating the grass of the fields just like the oxen. And it's going to happen for seven years. But you'll have a chance to come back, king. You'll have a chance to return. God will protect you in the wilderness. And after that seven years, you'll have a chance to come back if you'll recognize who the Most High God is. Now, this is a very strange thing for a man to go out and live like a beast. Why is this going to happen? Well, there's a disease, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, called lycanthropy. Anybody ever heard of lycanthropy? It's not very common. They don't have a telethon for sufferers of lycanthropy. You know, there's not like lycanthropy sufferers month like there is for breast cancer and other things. And that's because it's kind of rare. This is a disease, it's a mental disorder where people begin to believe that they're animals. And they start to act like animals. In fact, there are whole hospitals for sufferers of lycanthropy. One doctor said he described uh, seeing people, they would go outside and they would crawl on all fours and they would, with their mouth, they'd eat the grass and only drink water because they thought they were animals. And it's a real disease and it can last a whole lifetime or it can last a short period of time. And Daniel is saying that this dream tells you you're going to be a sufferer. He didn't know the name, but it's going to last seven years on you. But Daniel's got some advice for him. Because this serves as a warning, like a gosh, God of grace does. He warns us before he punishes us. In verse 27, it says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, if you're the king and you hear this interpretation, and Daniel in the past has been correct in his interpretations, and you've grown to trust Daniel, he seems to know things that you don't know, that other people don't know, what would you do? Well, looking back on this, as we sit in a church and read it from a Bible that's been inspired by a God that we love and trust, we think, of course he's going to repent, right? But remember, they've been together now for 30 years probably. I bet Daniel's given him this message a number of times, just as friends sitting around in the palace. You know, king, if you repented, things would change for you. <laughs> change, what needs to change? Look at my kingdom, it's so great. Look at all that I have built. Look at all that I have done. Look at all the lands that I have con conquered. But king, God is the only God. And he's the one who's letting this happen for you. Be quiet, Daniel. You're a good leader. But you know, let's not talk religion. I don't know if those conversations happened, but I just uh, imagine that they could. But understand this, God is a God of grace. And he'll give you a chance to repent before 
He brings punishment. Recently, there was a strange occurrence. And uh, all over our country, people started to get packages in the mail. And these packages said that they were something else. But when they opened them up, it turns out they were seeds from China. That's right, China. <laughs> and you wonder, what's going on here? And no one knows. No one has any knowledge of what they are. Lots of, lots of theories, lots of guesses. You know, with all that's happening between America and China right now, people have really come up with some crazy ideas and some conspiracy theories. And, you know, just because it's a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> and so authorities have been giving out a warning saying, don't plant them and don't eat them. Just burn them up. Just destroy them. Get rid of them. You know, I sort of wish that they would have said, hand them over to experts who could study them, but that doesn't seem to have been the warnings that most places have gotten. But it's kind of strange, you know, these warnings. And we see warnings all over the place. You know, every package you buy seems to have some protective legal warning on it. You know, we're just trying to protect our customers. No, you're trying to protect yourself from lawsuits. We know what's really going on. But there's warnings everywhere, aren't there? And I want you to know that I believe that there are warnings from God everywhere. That's what this was, a warning from God. King, you could repent. I think 2020 might be an incredibly large warning from God. I don't think that's all it is. I think God's doing a lot during this time. Last week we talked about that in that little book that I read by John Piper talking about the coronavirus in Christ. Get that book and read it. And he talks about all the different possibilities of what God might be doing. But one of them, I believe absolutely, that God has a warning for America and for the whole world. And what that might that warning be? Repent while there is still time. See, God wants us to do that. These Old Testament prophecies were filled with warning. Jesus gave us uh, very general warnings. Look at uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. I'll put it up there so you don't have to turn from Daniel. It says, there, uh, there were present at the season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their, sac excuse me, their sacrifices. He's talking about how Pilate had slaughtered some Galilean people. Some terrible event that had happened in that day. We don't know what that was or what happened. It's just, this is the only place we know of in literature where it's mentioned. In verse 2, And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, and he comes up with another example from present day, Jesus, first century Galilee, present day. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? And we do know about this. There was a, an aqueduct, you know, a, a high up thing that carried water from the mountains down into the city of Jerusalem. And apparently one day one of them fell and, and I guess 18 people died at this tragedy. And Jesus said, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? And we look at all the terrible things that happen. You know, the hurricane that recently came through. The explosions that are, seem to be going on all over the world. Uh, tornadoes and ridiculous, crazy things that are happening. And you say, oh, well, those must be the really bad sinners. No, Jesus is saying, do you think all of those sufferers of these disasters are worse sinners than the rest of you? Or from our perspective, the rest of us? 
Now, in the minds of God, all sinners are equally sinful, regardless of what we have done. We like to rank sinners, but God doesn't. He ranks them all the same. Sinner in need of salvation. And if we will just repent, as it says, he says in in verse uh, 3 there, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus used that freak accident just like we could use the earthquake in North Carolina or or the murder hornets or or a global pandemic or, or the dangerous seeds from China or whatever thing that brings death or destruction or suffering into our world. And it doesn't mean those sufferers are any worse a sinner than me. I'm just as bad a sinner as them. But he's using it as a warning. Repent! Change your heart. Return to to, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Return to God who is in complete control of all things. He's giving us time. Well, apparently the king doesn't get the word. Because he doesn't see it. Look at verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, he was talking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And again, it reminds us of those hanging gardens of Babylon, considered one of the eighth wonders of the world. He is really impressed with himself. And sometimes we get mighty impressed with ourselves. As the proverb says, pride goes before destruction. Notice how much he marveled. I have built my power, my majesty, my glory, my honor. And in verse 31 it says, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. The very words were in his mouth. And then he heard the voice. Maybe it sounded like the voice of Daniel, I don't know. But he heard the voice coming from heaven. Your kingdom has departed from you. In verse 33, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of the heavens till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Total humiliation. Lycanthropy had come. He was absolutely a beast of the field, at least in his own mind. And the description there, it says his hair grew. It says it grew like eagle feathers. I think what that is, is he probably just kind of had, you know, a a head of hair that was very coarse. And as it grew longer and longer, it just kind of looked like a, a mess. His nails, if you've ever seen anybody whose nails have grown. I remember as a kid opening up the old Guinness Book of World Records and the guy who had the longest nails, you know, they like twisted and curled like that. It was just gross. It made me, ugh, it made me think yuck, you know. 
And ladies, you who grow your nails long, don't they sort of curl just a little bit? And then you know maybe it's time to trim them a little bit. Uh, I know me. Mine don't grow very long. I don't let them grow. But they do. They kind of curl. And he's saying it's just like, like the claws of an eagle. He is looking and acting and living like a beast out in the fields, sleeping out at night, dew in the morning, eating the grass and water. He's suffering because of his own pride and arrogance. And that's the second thing we learn from this. Yes, a God of grace gives us time, but God also is certain to punish those who won't repent. He will absolutely punish those who won't, won't repent. You know, when God tells us to repent, it's not time to be idle and forget and ignore it. It's no idle threat. God's not like that parent who says, uh, if you don't stop doing what you're going to do, I'm going to count to five. So they start counting. One, two, three, four, five. I told you if you don't stop doing, I'm going to count again. As if counting is so terrible. I don't care if you count, Mom. You can count all you want. Doesn't bother me. No, what they need is a little swat on the behind with a rod. <laughs> they need punishment. And God is certain to, punishment, to, to punish us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to keep suffering in our sin. He doesn't want us to keep suffering in separation from him because he's the only hope we have of getting through this world. You have a choice. Receive the mercy of God or receive the punishment of God. You say, well, that's not very good, godly. That's not very uh, uh, wonderful. That's not very good or nice. Yes, it is incredibly nice because none of us deserves the mercy. We all deserve the punishment. And yet in his love, he says, I'll give you grace if you'll only repent. But if you don't repent, punishment is coming. Well, then we see in the last four verses of this passage, a total change. Beginning in verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. I wonder what that day was like for him. He got up trying to find some little bitty tree to rest under, his hair all over him, his nails nice and long. He gets up in the morning, and like every animal, he's probably thinking, I gotta find some water, you know, and lapping it up next to a stream somewhere. He starts chewing on some grass, getting his breakfast, and then suddenly he has a thought. Wait a minute. I'm not an animal. I'm a human. What am I doing out here? What is going on? What, why? Look at my finger, my hair. What's happening? And he looks up and he realizes. Maybe in that moment it's possible that he heard the words, your kingdom has been removed. Sense, understanding for just a brief moment returned to him. And he remembered the warning of Daniel and he thought, wait a minute, God, most high God, help me. And in that moment, he was restored. <laughs> I bet he started to crawl at first, but then realized, wait a minute, I can walk. And stood up and walked and maybe even began to run back into the city. And whoever was keeping watch over the city while he was gone, somebody must have found him and brought him. And, you know, maybe they probably cut his nails and carefully, you know, trimmed his hair and gave him a good bath and put some 
uh, wealthy, you know, beautiful clothes like he used to wear on his body, something good to eat. And as he sat on his throne, he probably thought to himself, this throne is not my throne. This throne belongs to the Most High. I only sit on it by his power. And it says at the second half of verse 34, he begins the greatest and most amazing testimony of God's glory that maybe you'll read in scripture. I mean, there's a lot of them. I think of Mary's words when she learned that from the angel that the, that the Savior would come through her. And she sang the beautiful words that we now call the Magnificat, the Latin phrase for how magnificent he is. We think of the children of Israel after God saved them from the Egyptians and the song that they sang after uh, seeing that the waters squashed the worst army in the known world at that time, the Egyptian army. And they were now saved from the torture that they had suffered for 40 years. The angels in heaven cry out and sing, holy, holy, holy. But you know, I think with those testimonies of God's glory, I think this one deserves to stand next to them. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing. <coughs> Excuse me, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? No more talk of my power, my glory, my kingdom. He's now testifying about God's glory, God's power, God's kingdom. You know, there's a lot of debate among commentators was this a salvation experience? Or did he just recognize that that one God was better than all the other gods? But as I see all the clues, the way he addressed Daniel in a new way, the way he talked about himself before this experience, and then the way he talked about God after it, to me, this feels like as sincere a praise chorus as I've ever seen in Scripture. I believe that's the day that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. Now realize his kingdom didn't last much longer. He was only on the throne probably a few more years after this. He died of old age. But I bet he died and went to heaven. I can't promise you that's true. I don't know. But this looks like it. And if you find yourself in a situation where you repent this drastically, I think you'll find yourself in the arms of God one day if you'll just put your trust and faith in God and recognize his power and his glory. And what Nebuchadnezzar didn't get to know, we now do know that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It says in verse 36, at that same time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. All of those, who, all of those works are truth, and his way justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. He's saying, God gave it all back to me, just like Job. 
who lost everything but honored God, and then God gave it back to him many times over. He's saying, I honored myself, but God put me down, and now God standed, stood me back up. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. And so we look at this, and we see the message. It's so simple. God's goodness warns us, you better repent. God's righteousness judges us if we won't repent. And God's grace forgives us and restores us if we finally will repent. And God's sovereignty is over all things and controls it all. God is the God, the only God, the true God, the one God. And he's over all things. As I think about this passage, I think about you know, the power of our nation's presidency. And here we are in the midst of a, another divisive election. These people are doing everything they can. They're going to spend a billion dollars each to win this seat. They're going to compromise many of them their integrity to gain this power. Some of them will lie. They'll cheat. Who knows? They might even kill. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's amazing all the effort to be able to take the seat that people on earth say is the most powerful on the face of the earth. But I know this, to say the president is the most powerful person alive is a lie. And compared to God, his kingdom isn't worth 50 cents. And you and I, no matter what our political affiliations may be, might on November 4th, the day after election, be angry, frustrated, or celebrate with great joy. But know this, presidents have come and gone, kings have come and gone, but God goes on and on from generation to generation for all eternity. And it's time for us to put our true faith and our true trust in the one with the real power who can bring about pandemics and stop them with just a thought in his head and who, more importantly, can remove your sin. Because Jesus has already paid it all. And if you'll just trust him. All the inhabitants in verse 35 of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, Oh, what have you done? He's done it all. Imagine living with that knowledge. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter how rich your bank account is doesn't matter what your job status is, what your health is like, what people think about you, who is impressed with you, what might happen to you this week. God is in control, and I am not. And if we'll only trust him. It's like that song says, Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. 
Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.